How many of you have driven Interstate 40 down the hill from Black Mountain to Old Fort? The drive is about nine miles, and from the highest elevation, it drops about 1,400 feet down a curvy road with a number of emergency off-ramps for trucks that lose their brakes. It is really a white-knuckle drive. Probably fewer of you have driven State Road 80 down from Mount Mitchell to Marion. It is about 15 miles and drops almost a mile in elevation. There are many hairpin turns and horseshoes in the road. When I was in my last semester at NC State, I had an old C-body 356 Porsche ragtop. I used to drive to the top of Mount Mitchell and see how fast I could come down the road to Marion. It was really a fun ride. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is a lot like these roads. It is about 17 miles long and it drops 3,300 feet in elevation. Added to the physical challenges of that journey are the robbers lying in wait along the way. The road plays a role in the parable of the Good Samaritan. There are many twists and turns in the road and in our gospel lesson. Turn with me to Luke 10, 25 to 37, and let's take a closer look. There are really two stories being told here. One is a real-life encounter between two men, a lawyer and a teacher. The lawyer is unnamed. The teacher is Jesus. The second story is a parable, a story told to make a point, a story in this case that has lots of interesting characters, a traveler, some robbers, a priest, a Levite, a Samaritan, and an innkeeper. None of them are identified. It's not real life, but it is believable. First, let's look at the real life encounter. Earlier in chapter 10, Jesus sent out the 72 and gave them authority to heal the sick and proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. Joel preached on this last week. The 72 came back with this report. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus calmed them down a bit and began to teach them. That is the context for today's gospel. Apparently others had gathered around the 72, for out of the crowd our text tells us, behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. The lawyer asked Jesus two questions, neither of which Jesus answered. After each question, Jesus asked a question of the lawyer. And when the lawyer responds correctly, Jesus essentially tells him each time, do this. The lawyer was not a representative of the secular courts, but an expert in Jewish law, the writings of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. He knew the answer to the first question he was going to ask Jesus. His reason for asking was in hope to catch Jesus in some error or violation of the law. He asked to put Jesus to the test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Note that the lawyer acknowledges Jesus to be a teacher. The Greek word for teacher is stronger than the word rabbi. 
Rabbi, a rabbi might gather students and form a rabbinical school, but a teacher spoke with broader authority. The lawyer granted Jesus authority, but hoped to catch him off guard. Jesus deflects. He does not answer the question directly. Jesus knows he is being tested, and he asks the lawyer a question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus effectively takes a twist in the road. How do you read it? The lawyer had in mind some sort of works righteousness. What shall I do, he asked. So Jesus refers him to the law, which the lawyer knows well. And true to form, the lawyer replies from the law, combining the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and adding a command from Leviticus 19, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew and Mark tell similar stories. One of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In Matthew and Mark, Jesus answers directly. In Luke, Jesus turns it back on the lawyer. I imagine Jesus had frequently asked, been asked such questions. When the lawyer answers, Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this. In other words, keep the law and you will inherit eternal life. Neither Jesus nor the lawyer understood eternal life to mean that life merely goes on forever. They understood it as life lived in the presence of God. The quality of life lived for the glory of God. Unfortunately, both Jesus and the lawyer know that, keep, that truly keeping the law, loving God and loving your neighbor, is not within the scope of human capability. They knew that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God is not a revelation first understood by the Apostle Paul. The psalmist also wrote, The Lord looks down from heaven to on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So our lawyer friend, who knows he has not kept the law and cannot do so, seeks to justify himself. His attitude is still wrong. Trying to justify himself, he asked Jesus a second question, and who is my neighbor? Once again, Jesus does not answer the lawyer's question directly. He tells a story, a parable. Then he asks the lawyer a question. Here's the story. Let's look at it line by line. The parable begins at verse 30. Follow along. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. The lawyer and the rest of the audience would have assumed that the man was a Jew. Jesus doesn't tell us why the man was going to, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it's not important to the story. But the audience would remember what the road was like. 
17 miles long with a steep decline of over 3,300 feet. And they would not be surprised by what came next. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Added to the rugged terrain, the ever-present danger of robbers lying in wait for travelers. The man was robbed, stripped, and beaten, and left for dead. It was a familiar story. In 1995, my middle son, Joshua, moved to Rogers Park area of Chicago. He enrolled in Northwestern University and began work on his doctoral degree in economics. One night coming home from a karate class downtown, he got off the train at the Howard Street station and walked the six blocks or so to his apartment. Three men jumped him, strangled him until he was unconscious, beat and kicked him, robbed him and left him for dead on the curb. True story. The only good news was that when they took his car keys, they found his car to be such a piece of junk that they left the car and threw the keys in the bushes. We later found the keys. Joshua came to and made his way to his apartment and eventually to a hospital. Carolyn and I got an emergency call, caught a flight to Chicago and moved our son to a safer neighborhood. The parable continues. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Jericho was a town where many priests lived, waiting their rotation of duty in the temple in Jerusalem. As a priest, he would have been concerned about ritual purity. If the man had in fact been dead, touching his dead body would have made the priest unclean and unable to perform his temple duties. He put ritual purity before coming to the assistance of a man in need. The priest might also have been afraid that if he stopped to help, he too would become a victim. He hurried past the wounded man. So likewise a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him pass by on the other side. The Levite would have had the same concern for ritual purity, the same concern for his personal safety. He, too, hurried along his way. The lawyer and the rest of the audience would have expected that the next person to come along would have been a Jewish layperson. But Jesus takes a hairpin curve, an unexpected twist in the story. Jesus continues, but a Samaritan. Who exactly were the Samaritans? When Assyria conquered Israel and took their chief priests and other key people into exile, they transplanted people from Babylon and other regions into the city of Samaria and surrounding territory. Their people intermarried, these people intermarried with the working class Jews left behind in Samaria. It was the way for ancient kings to destroy racial and religious purity and thus to destroy national loyalties reducing the chance of a revolt. After the conquest of Israel by the Persian king Cyrus in the sixth century before Christ, the Jews were granted permission by King Artaxerxes to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But the Jews refused to let the mixed racial Samaritans make offerings for the temple. 
Ezra and Nehemiah were therefore opposed by Sanballat and the army of Samaria. The Samaritans built their own temple at Shiloh. The relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans went from bad to worse. Jesus is telling the parable of the Good Samaritan after 500 years of bad blood. The Jews saw themselves as pure racially and religiously, but the Samaritans were mixed racially and religiously impure, worshiping foreign gods alongside Yahweh. They were detested by the Jews. Continuing, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. We don't know if the Samaritan was on his way up to Jerusalem or down to Jericho. All we know is that he was on a journey, presumably a routine trip. He, had, he saw the man and had compassion. He didn't matter if it was a Jew or a Gentile. He went to his aid. What the Samaritan did was pretty much normal first aid for the day, to clean and bind the man's wounds. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The animal might have been a horse, but it would most likely have been a donkey. In any case, the Samaritan would now be walking. Remember, Jesus is telling a story to make a point. Though it is believable, it is not a factual account of a real-life event. In the story, the, man, the Samaritan took the man to an inn and nursed his wounds. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. A denarius was a day's wages, and two denarii would have covered several weeks, perhaps as much as two months, room and board in the inn. The Samaritan was perhaps a regular patron at the inn, but in any case, he was trusted by the innkeeper to repay whatever more he spent. That's the story. The lawyer has, had asked a second question. Desiring to justify himself, he asked, and who is my neighbor? Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, after telling the parable, Jesus asked a question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Was it the priest who walked past on the other side of the road? Was it the Levite who did the same? Or was it the Samaritan? How do you define neighbor? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? There can only be one answer. The lawyer replies correctly, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus accepts his answer as correct and tells the lawyer, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. The lawyer had asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus answered the question, sort of. The question Jesus really answered was, what does love demand of me? Jesus didn't say, you're right, Samaritans are your neighbor. He said, you go and do likewise. You go and be a neighbor. I want to be careful here. 
The parable of the Good Samaritan has been used to teach racial equality, that people of other races are your neighbor. It has been used to teach national and cultural sensitivity. It has been used to teach moral and political balance. And there is an element of truth there. But what Jesus really is teaching is that we are to show mercy to those in need, that we are to love our neighbor, to be a neighbor. That does not mean that we leave people who are caught up in sin in their sin. The kindest, most merciful thing we can say or do is to call sinners to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, to show mercy, to offer forgiveness. Parables are generally told to illustrate one point. Too often we try to extrapolate all kinds of meaning from a parable, some of which may be inferred, but too often we miss the main point. If you are to love your neighbor as yourself, the real question is not who is your neighbor, but what does love demand of me? The first question the lawyer asked was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He knew the answer. Love God, love your neighbor. Jesus told him, do this and you will have eternal life. But the lawyer knew he fell short. As John writes in his first epistle, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. But he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. So he sought to justify himself. He loved some people, but he was looking for a way out of loving everybody. Who is my neighbor? Jesus made him see not only who his neighbor is, but what it means to be a neighbor. He answered the real question, what does love demand of me? Legend has it that the famed Pentecostal pastor Juan Carlos Ortez of Argentina once stepped in the pulpit to preach and said, love one another, and then he sat down. The next Sunday he did the same, love one another. And the Sunday after that, the same, and the Sunday after that, he continued until revival broke out in his church. The parable of the Good Samaritan is not so much about racial division or about nationality or other issues that divide us. The lesson is this, show mercy to one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Bishop John Rogers, former dean and president of Trinity School for Ministry, used to tell us that we should look for the cross when we preach. We're called to preach Christ and him crucified. So where is the cross in the parable of the Good Samaritan? The best I can do is answer the question, what does love demand of me, with these words of Jesus from John's Gospel. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. On the cross, Jesus demonstrated what it meant to, to love his neighbor. He laid down his life. What does that look like for you? What does it mean for you to lay down your life for your friends, for your neighbor? What does love demand of you? You go and do likewise. In the name of the Father and of the Son, 
and of the Holy Spirit.